Good morning and welcome to Christ the King, where everybody is somebody in Jesus Christ is Lord. I do want to take just a minute or two before I read the passage this morning, make a couple of comments about the church as a whole. I really, really enjoy filling in for Chuck, uh, uh, and you enjoy filling in for a pastor because of the congregation. And it's the congregation that, uh, that, that you appreciate. I mentioned to the elders this morning that uh, when I preach, I don't think I can see anybody counting the squares and the ceilings and things like this. <laughs> uh, and if you're not paying attention, you're awfully good at faking it. <laughs> because when I look around, it seems as though you're listening and, you know, and I appreciate that. Uh, uh, I know uh, Chuck works hard at preparing his sermons, and I do, and if you put all that work into it, and people don't pay any attention to you, uh, you, you really notice that. You've got really outstanding music here. I could just sit here and listen to the music. And sometimes, you know, it's, uh, you get caught up in the music, and then all of a sudden you're supposed to preach, and your mind is somewhere else. <laughs> they're, they're really, really good. And I really appreciate Chuck as a pastor, and I appreciate his preaching. And I just want you to know that uh, 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 after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, I got together a group of men, and we formed a seminary in Ukraine. We offer a hundred and some odd programs. We send two men over every month, nine months a year, to teach. One of the most difficult subjects that I have finding people to teach is how to prepare sermons and preach. We have a number of people that, that do this, but I asked Chuck if he would consider, when he gets his strength back, because it's difficult, you go to Ukraine, you teach from 9 in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon for two weeks, you've got to have a certain amount of strength and stamina to do that. So I asked him if when he gets his strength back, would he consider going over and teaching sermons, how to preach, how to prepare sermons, because he's just really, I can name those people that I consider to be great preachers or great communicators, I can name them on one hand, and, and he's there. And he can really, really teach. I know that he can, he's just really good. And so he said he'd love to consider it. And so I'm looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to this congregation giving him the time off to uh, go over and preach. Because when the Soviet Union was, was dominant, no Protestant churches were allowed to meet in the country. For 70 years, nobody had ever been to a Protestant church. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, the believers got together and formed churches. Well, nobody knew what to do. Nobody, they hadn't had Bibles. It's awfully hard to prepare sermons if you don't have a Bible. And so we went over and we took the men who were preaching or trying to preach, women who were trying to teach us Sunday school, women's studies and all these things, and we give them training. And it's easy to find someone to teach theology and some of these other areas, but an awful lot, of, and we have Canadians going over as well, and a lot of uh, Americans and Canadians, I don't think that they put much thought into the structure of their sermons, because Chuck's sermons follow logically. Now, you're used to it. You may not notice it. But when I came in, I sat down and I heard the way he preached and the way he laid things out. I said, we need him teaching. But he was obviously, he's had two cancers. He's been through a lot. 
uh, and it's hard uh, to do something that takes a lot of physical strength and stamina uh, to do something like that for two weeks, especially after such a long trip. I didn't want, he might be here next week, and I wanted to say this this week, because I didn't want to embarrass Chuck. Uh, but I, I've told him what I think about his preaching anyway. And, and, I, was, and I was honest with him. I do another comment in the uh, order. Uh, the first thing in the bulletin is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson, and it says, God is a covenant-making, covenant-remembering, covenant-keeping God. Well, last week I dealt with just one little tiny aspect of the covenant, and I want to follow through with a little bit more of that this week. Uh, and uh, whoever picked out that quote to put in there just absolutely fit right in with what I had uh, to say. So I do appreciate the chance to fill in for Chuck and... Uh, uh, I'll be here next week, and he said even if he is here, that uh, he still wants me to preach, so I certainly do uh, appreciate that. Please follow along uh, in the bulletin or, or with your Bible as I read Exodus chapter 6, the first eight verses. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, I say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The word of the Lord. How often have you referred to having a relationship with God or Jesus. Now we all say that, but have you ever considered or thought of what a biblical description of that relationship should reflect? Should your relationship with God be like that of a husband and a wife? Or parent and child? Or a, uh, uh, or a master and his or her pet? Maybe it should be like a supervisor and an employee. Maybe it should be like a prison guard and an inmate. Now, in order to answer that, first think about who establishes the relationship between Jesus and us mortals. And what should that relationship reflect from a biblical description, not necessarily what you might like it to be? It is God that establishes the relationship using the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. 
And this message today deals with what it should reflect from a biblical perspective. Our passage that I read deals with the relationship between the covenant, the Lord, and us. And the heart of our relationship is the promise in verse 7, I, God's the initiator, I will take you as my people, and I, the uh, one who initiates, will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now let's see how this reflects or corresponds to a personal relationship with Jesus. A covenant is a serious binding agreement or obligation that one person makes with somebody else. In the Old Testament times, a covenant, this serious uh, bond and agreement, was typically sealed in blood. Shows the seriousness, well there's more to it than that, but it shows the seriousness of a covenant. A covenant is a relationship between the Lord and those that he has sovereignly consecrated to himself. He rules over these people by the sanctions of his law and he fulfills in and through them the purposes of his grace. Law and grace go all the way through the covenant. Parties participate in a covenant through a representative called a covenant mediator. The mediator is responsible for speaking on behalf of his people. He represents the interest of his people before the sovereign with the power, in our case, that is God. In the covenant of works, Adam was the mediator. Adam was responsible to keep the covenant and to teach it to Eve. He was to represent Eve before the righteous judge if she broke the covenant. Adam had no mediator since God dealt with him directly. Now listen carefully. For the Christian, a covenant is a life and death relationship with God on his terms. It's not your terms, it's not my terms. The relationship is based on his terms of the covenant. The meaning of the term Lord, that's used six times in our passage, and I'm dealing with Lord as it is used within the covenant, not some other relationship. The meaning of the term Lord is a name that presents God to us as the head of a covenant. It's a relational term. A Lord is always Lord of somebody. You're not a Lord if you don't have any people. So a Lord is Lord of someone. Where there is a Lord, there is a, uh, there is a servant and a servant relationship to the Lord. A, Lord. a Lordship is a relationship that's called a covenant uh, relation, but it's not an equal relation. God's covenant lordship can be seen in his lordship attributes of power, control, authority, and presence. By his power, he established the covenant. 
It's not, the covenant isn't the result of negotiation. God imposes the covenant unilaterally. Now, when I say he imposes it, it's a free gift, it is his grace, and it is unmerited favor. By his control, he maintains the covenant, he enforces his uh, sanctions, blessings for obedience, and curses for disobedience. By his lordship attribute of authority, he declares the covenant law, and he holds us responsible for keeping it. He imposes blessings and uh, punishments as appropriate. And by his lordship attribute of presence, he is with us, he enters into our lives, he loves us, he guides us, and he disciplines us when necessary. For some of us, it's more necessary than for others, or uh, more, uh, necessary more often. Covenants have stipulations of promise and obligations. The stipulations lay out the responsibility for each party. It lays out the responsibilities for the Lord, and it lays out the responsibility for the Lord's people. Now, the stipulations and promises are often given after the covenant is given within Scripture. Now, think about this. What are the obligations of God to us when he says, I will be your God? and what is expected of us, who he refers to as my people. Now, the answer to both questions is found in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 13, where God said, if, that's an if, that's conditional, if you obey my commandments, which I command you today, then I will bless you. He promises blessings, that's his obligation to us, if we obey his commandments. But if we don't obey his commandments, then the promise of a blessing isn't there. If you wonder why you're not blessed, think about it. Is it your fault or is it God's fault? Now, through progressive revelation, our Lord expanded his teaching on this covenant uh, that's given to us in Exodus chapter 6. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, He declared to you his covenant, which he commands you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments. So God says, my covenant, or part of my covenant, to you is the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, where we have the Ten Commandments, he reveals more about the promises and stipulations of the covenant, and his lordship relationship is really explained to us in some detail within the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, our Lord used a format to outline the terms of his covenant that people knew very, very well. They didn't know the Ten Commandments, they hadn't been given yet, but they knew the format and the outline of the Ten Commandments. And I'll explain that in a minute. We're going to examine the Ten Commandments as a covenant relationship between God and us 
this is foundational to understand our relationship with Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 24 and verse 12, and Exodus 31, 18, and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 22, it says the Ten Commandments were written on two tablets of stone. I think we've got that down pretty good. Sometimes we get confused about it. But it was written on two tablets of stone. Exodus chapter 32 in verses 15 and 16 says each stone had writing on both sides. The stones were duplicate copies of each other. Some of the commandments on the front, some of the commandments on the back. Same thing with the other stone. And we'll see this, but they, these two stones, one copy is given to the people, one copy is kept by the one who imposes the covenant. See, there was a covenant format used at that time that defined the relationship between the Lord and his people. But the Lord and his people, and what I'm talking about is when one king called a suzerain or a lord conquered another king, which was then called the vassal, the greater king, the suzerain or the lord, wrote out promises and stipulations that the two nations were to follow. The nations that did the conquering made promises to the nation that was conquered. And the nation that was conquered made promises to the one who did the conquering. And there were two copies. Of, there's a lot of these copies because they were written in stone or uh, metal when they had it and, and they were uh, uh, prized and they were kept. So there's two copies one for each nation. Now, here's what, and this is what the people knew at that time, here's what determined the relationship between the suzerain king or the Lord and the vassal. Now, what I'm going to say right now, was, was in, it was in secular use, but you'll see the comparisons. These two, uh, uh, these two copies of the covenant, on each one was the name of the greater one, the one that did the conquering, the Lord, the one who reigned supreme. His name was on both copies. Second, there was a historical prologue. It explained what happened, and it was laid out by the greater one. Thirdly, you had laws that were to be followed. These laws were imposed. They were non-negotiable. They had general laws, and they had specific laws. The general law was a commandment of exclusive covenant loyalty, often referred to as love. The one that was conquered pledged love to the greater one, and back and forth. Then after that general commandment, they had specific commandments showing the outworking of the loyalty or love uh, uh, commandment. Fourthly, there were sanctions, which included blessings for obedience, and curses for disobedience. In the Ten Commandments, God is the suzerain or the Lord, Moses was the mediator, and the people were the vassals. Now let's see the similarities between that secular pattern that was well known at that time in the land and the Ten Commandments and God's covenant relationship between him and us based on Exodus 20. First, in the Ten Commandments, God announces his name. In verse 2, I am the Lord your God. 
Secondly, the historical prologue. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Third, the, uh, uh, the laws. First was the general commandment of exclusive covenant loyalty. You shall have no other gods before me. Fourth, that was followed by nine commandments specifically how that general commandment was to be carried out. You are to love me, and here's how we're going to work this out. Now, in the Ten Commandments, there is no special section for sanctions, but they're given within the commandments. Like, for example, after the second commandment, in uh, chapter 20, in verse 4, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to those who love me. Now, when the people received the Ten Commandments from Moses, it all made sense to them. They were used to that happening. There was the Lord, the one who did the conquering, there was the mediator, and there was the people. And there was promises and stipulations of both the Lord and of the people. The literary form enables us to see the same elements of God's covenantal relationship with us, his people. First, God's covenant is a personal, it reflects a personal relationship. He gave us his name, he defined us as the Lord, and he is the Lord our God. Secondly, the prologue tells us that the covenant began with grace. Israel did not earn the right to be delivered from Egypt in slavery. He said, I am the Lord, your God, I love you, and I want you to leave, and he wanted them to leave for their benefit. It reflects his grace and his love towards his people. It was a free the exodus was a free gift. He saved them and he rescued them because they were his people and he loved them. But keep in mind that God imposed this upon the people. It wasn't negotiated. God had to convince them to leave Egypt. They didn't, it was a free gift. It was grace. And for some reason, they preferred slavery and death over grace and love. And we see that reflected a lot today in society. And we even see that reflected sometimes within our churches. But be, remember this. Obedience follows grace. We don't obey God to earn our salvation. We keep his commandments out of thankfulness for him, for the grace that he has bestowed upon us. He gave it to us. He imposed it upon us. So since he did this, and since we recognize it, we want to do those things that not only please him, but the things that please him are for our own good. Do not steal. That's for our own good. All of the commandments are. But the first element of the law is love. Exclusive covenantal loyalty is the first element. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's imposed upon us, but that's the first element 
of the law is love. And sometimes we look at the law negatively, but it comes to us because God loves us. The law of love motivates us to keep his other commandments. He says, don't make graven images. God made one image of himself, and we're not to make another image of God. He is the image maker, not us. He made man and woman in his image, and that's good enough. We don't need to make another image. Love and law are not opposed to each other. Love is a commandment. It's the fundamental law. It's the beginning of the law. Keeping his commandments brings blessings. Disobeying them brings misery. This isn't legalism. This is a working out of a covenantal relationship that we see described for us within the Ten Commandments. Now, a new covenant, a better one, was told to us in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. It's also a relationship that's imposed unilaterally by God. He says, I'm going to give you a new and a better one, and he imposes it on us as non-negotiable. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. Not like the one I made with their fathers when he said that the other one was made in connection with being released from slavery in Egypt. So the new one is different from that. He says, he says I will be their God and they will be my people. The end of that is the same. The historical prologue is what changes. The new covenant adds... Uh, new, uh, the New Covenant word for, I mean, the New Testament word for covenant adds the idea of a last will and testament. It emphasizes that the covenant bond is based on life and death. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 18, says that Jesus is the mediator of the New Covenant. And death must occur before to complete the terms of the covenant. This is the ultimate covenant. It's the fulfillment and the extension of all prior covenants between God and his people. And it also explained the benefits to people from all... It extended the benefits to the peop all the people... I mean, from, uh, to people from all nations of the earth. Now, years after Jeremiah uh, prophesied, as Passover arrived... Jesus sat down with his disciples to celebrate the Mosaic Covenant through the Passover meal. Now, for thousands of years, people celebrated Passover by following a strict order with promises stated throughout the meal. Now, well aware of the magnitude of the moment, Jesus did not speak the words that tradition required. Instead, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 25, Jesus took a cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and he told them to drink it in remembrance of him. In the new covenant, God gave us a new and perfect human mediator, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He established it just like he did in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 9, in verse 9, 
God said, I established my covenant with you. He established it. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 4, which I read, I have established my covenant with them. And in Isaiah chapter 55 in verse 3, he says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. God is the one that made and imposed the covenant upon his people. But now, in the New Testament, rather than take a life as with the Mosaic covenant, Jesus gave his life as the sacrificial substitute for sinners. He became the mediator. In the New Covenant, God comes to be with us as he did with the old mediator. Before the old mediator was Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. But Jesus is a better mediator than Adam and uh, 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 Noah and Abraham and Moses. And he was a better David. In this New Covenant, all of the promises and prophecies and foreshadowings are fulfilled. In the new covenant, we no longer need a priest because we have Jesus as our great high priest. And I'll explain that a little bit more next week. We no longer offer sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer celebrate Passover. It was replaced with our Lord's Supper. These things are gone. They're replaced with something better. But remember, God gave us grace before we do anything to please him, and he increases that grace and blessings as we live in obedience. You don't think you have to be obedient? Try it, and you can expect misery and curses. It will come. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, offers us a description of somebody who is a perfect, or a pos I should say positive, Covenantal relationship with Jesus. Stack these three verses and what they say and teach up against your personal life as you live it out on a day-to-day -day basis. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That's an imposed, non-negotiable command. You want to have a positive relationship with Jesus Christ, you will do this. Verse 11, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Remember, the Lord, you have a lordship relationship and a servant relationship. That's non-negotiable. You want to have a positive personal relationship with Jesus Christ, confess that he is Lord. Verse 12, this is, might be a tough one. Work out your salvation in trembling and fear. There's no getting around it. You want to have a positive relationship with Jesus Christ? Work out your salvation in trembling and fear. This isn't works. Working out your salvation. Don't say I'm born again. I'm secure. I can do as I used to do. Think as I used to think. That's contrary to the plain teaching of Scripture. These three verses really reflect what having a personal relationship should reflect. You can't pick two out of three or one out of three or modify all three. 
These are specific teachings and commands that we are, uh, that we are given. Are we equal with Jesus in our covenantal relationship with him? No, we're not equal. He's Lord. We are the vassals or the servants or bondservants. He is Lord over our relationship. And if he wasn't the Lord over our relationship and we were, it wouldn't last at all. We would change the terms of everything that we want to change the terms on. Jesus is not suggesting obedience. He commands obedience. Donna and I were in Crystal, New Mexico a few years ago, and we were at one of the Navajo uh, uh, main buildings, whatever they call it, and there was a popular pastor in the United States, and he'd written a book, and there was multiple copies of it, and it was called God's Ten Suggestions. <laughs> and I picked it up, and I, I wasn't going to buy it for sure, but I quickly looked through it, and God just suggests these 10 things for us to do. And if we decide to do some of these, God's just going to bless us royally. And from my quick perusal of the book, I guess you could pick whatever ones you wanted to keep or keep whenever you wanted them to, and God was surely going to bless you. God's 10 suggestions. That is so far the opposite of what I am saying today. This guy would be called a great preacher. He has a huge, huge mega church. He has all of these things. And that's the reason why. He makes the people happy and comfortable. If you like one of God's suggestions, follow through with it, you know. God loves you anyway, yeah. He commands obedience. God's not the man upstairs. He's not your best friend. He's not your daddy that you sit on his lap. God isn't whatever you decide to call him. He is our sovereign Lord, and we are his people, or vassals, if you want to use that terminology. Now, you could easily, easily be thinking, how does all of what I have said fit in with the idea of God being a loving father who adopts his people into his family and forgives us for all of our sins. Listen to me carefully. God adopts us into his family under the terms of his covenant. If you don't want the terms of his covenant, turn around and walk away. What good father does not love his children enough to set boundaries for them. We have to set boundaries for our children. If not, who knows what they're going to do? Well, I know what they're going to do. What good father does not teach his children from right from wrong? That's what God is doing here. He sets boundaries for us. He teaches us right from wrong. What good father does not provide safety and welfare for his children? God does the same thing. What good father does not reward good behavior and punish bad behavior? I even give my dog treats when it's good. And I've scolded him a couple of times when he wasn't good. He's just a dog. But I love him, you see. And I want to do what's best for him. One difference 
between an earthly father and our heavenly father is that he knows our weaknesses so well that he writes out what he expects of us on page after page after page of scripture. What's this Bible all about? It's about knowing God and knowing ourselves and seeing how God wants to shape or mold us into something fit for heaven. Now, we're not going to be fit for heaven until we get there. But we call this the process of sanctification. He wants us to increase in our sanctification. We should want to increase in our sanctification because he showed us love and grace first before anything else. If you reject his covenant and his covenant relationship, you cannot expect his blessings. If you embrace his covenant relationship, then you can expect at least spiritual blessings and probably other blessings along with it. He, you, he doesn't define blessings for us. So a blessing for you may be different than a, bless for, a blessing over here for someone else and something different for me. But we do know it'll be a blessing according to our individual uh, needs and what it is that he wants to provide for us. Now I want, to, I want to conclude by stating that a relationship with Jesus is not like that of a husband and wife or parent and child or a master and a pet or a supervisor and an employee or a prison guard and an inmate. It is very, very different from any other relationship we can think of. The covenant relationship is planned instituted and governed by God, he promises us certain things and he will hold to those. But he also places obligations on us. It's not done with our permission or consultation or approval. If God tried to consult with me on something, what a mess. It would benefit me probably, but nobody else. Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 1, said, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. There's at least 17 references to bond servants in the New Testament. If only each of us could reflect what Paul was describing as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. If we could reflect the, the life and the thinking and the actions of a biblical bond servant. I want to close praying that we will strive to comply with the terms of our covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ as bond servants. And it's not hard to figure out what they are because it's laid out for us beautifully in ten commandments. They're not suggestions. It doesn't take very long to read those ten things. Apply Philippians to your life as far as uh, this is what reflects whether or not you have adopted this covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you pray to Jesus and ask for forgiveness for your sins and meant it and really understand that God's love and grace came first, yes, he expects certain things out of us, then I am sure you're going to reflect the terms of the covenantal relationship in your life. You're going to have some blessings that you might not even know about because God protects us and he guides us and he keeps us safe. And yes, he does bring us home. Sometimes he uses 
untimely death to bring us home. Sometimes he uses cancer or heart attacks or strokes, car accident, whatever it may be. He has a way of bringing us home at the perfect time. But between now and then, let's just reflect this covenantal relationship in our lives. And let's be honest and sincere about it. And uh, we're the ones that receive the tremendous blessings. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for scripture. All the way through it, you describe yourself. And you describe us. And you give incident after incident after incident of how you deal with your people. You deal with those in disobedience. You deal with those in obedience. You do whatever is necessary to draw your people to yourself. Father, we just pray and thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for this process of sanctification that we're not expected to be perfect. But Father, we are expected to read, to study, to learn, to apply biblical truths to our thinking and to our speech and to our actions. Father, let us leave here today smiling, contented, knowing that we have a God that acts in love and grace first. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.